Hello and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 74 movies, one cage. Today's movie is Gone in 60 Seconds from 2000. We have broken into a new millennium. The film is directed by Dominic Cena and written by Scott Rosenberg. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And we have with us today a very special guest. We have Dan Hayden. Hello, Dan. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much, Joey. How are you? I'm very good. Very excited to talk about Gone in 60 Seconds. Now, I have a very important question for you that we ask all of our guests. Why did you want to talk about this movie? Among many of the other movies that I would have liked to talk about, this one in particular has a little bit of meaning, a little bit special to me. It was probably one of one of those first, you know, real date movies I went out on as like a 13-year-old. I took a girl out to see this movie, and it actually went very well. I, w- I would probably give it, <laughs> say it went well because of Nicolas Cage in this amazing movie, but that's probably why I picked it, just because I remember going to the theater and enjoying the whole experience of seeing this movie as a kid. We've had a lot of people talk about how these movies bring them back to when they first saw it in theaters, but I think this is the first date movie that we've had. Yeah. When Eric came on to talk about Moonstruck, he talked about how his fiance was really like, he, he loved that movie and they shared it together. But this is like an adorable you and another 13-year-old girl just like going to the theater, watching Nick Cage and Angelina Jolie just stealing cars. Exactly. It was a good date movie. There was a little bit of romance. There was, you know, a little bit of action, a lot of action. It was perfect, you know, 13 years old. PG-13 movie. I mean, what more could could a guy my age ask for? There's a long uh, history between cars and sex as well, so there may have been <laughs> some sort of aphrodisiac-type effect on two of you as well watching this. This movie was directed by Dominic Cena, who will come back to direct Season of the Witch, which is the movie <laughs> I'm least looking forward to rewatching. I mean, even though it combines Cage and Statham, I mean, we'll get into it, but woof. And it's written by Scott Rosenberg, who wrote Con Air. And it's also another Jerry Bruckheimer movie. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of, we were talking about how The Rock and Con Air were both Bruckheimer movies. This is one sort of similar in that vein. And Mike, I guess I have a question for you. You were talking about how Con Air is kind of like The Rock Part 2, like it's sort of a continuation in terms of the style. Did you think this is kind of the same, or do you think this was a little bit different? Was Cena able to put his own stamp on the film? Well, I definitely get a lot of the formula here, right? There's a lot of the same, but it just doesn't feel connected as much, perhaps because it's not coming directly after. Uh, Maybe if I watched this directly after watching Con Air, it might feel more connected. But yeah, I just feel like there's something else going on. They're going for maybe... I don't know. They're going for something different. Yeah, perhaps the director styles taking over a little more than Bruckheimer's production. I feel it's a little disconnected from those films. I think there's sort of similar kind of things, but I agree that it feels different enough that it's not part of like a Bruckheimer trilogy. I'd seen this movie before, but this is the first time I've seen this since I saw all the Fast and Furious movies. And this movie actually predates Fast and the Furious by a year. But it's similar-ish. Like, there's a couple little moments, there's a couple locations that remind me of Fast and Furious. But this movie, I mean, Fast and the Furious was based on a magazine article about street racers in New York. Now, I don't know what this was based on, if this was based on anything in terms of that, or if there was just an idea for a story. I think that if you love this movie, and I think all three of us really like this movie to some extent, like, how do you think this compares or stacks up to the Fast and the Furious movies? You can see a bit of uh, the time period, definitely the most, uh, that they kind of have some things that are related to each other, but I, I feel like Fast and the Furious was a little more hip, so to speak, whereas Gone 60 Seconds was more about 
I don't want to say it was. It felt a little more old school, but it felt like you know there was a little bit more of a rule feel to it. You know, like with with all the old car thieves coming back and talking about all the things they used to do. Fast and the Furious always just seemed like a big thrill ride to me, whereas this seemed like more of a welcome back, all the old guys join with the new guys and work together to solve to solve the common problem. Whereas Fast and the Furious was all out, nonstop blitz. Yeah, I almost feel like this is the evil Fast and the Furious movie, like the evil twin version in some ways. Like it never went on to spawn a franchise, yet there are so many similarities between the two. I recall knowing more about Fast and the Furious than Gone in 60 Seconds when I went to see this movie and sort of had my arms crossed watching this saying, I want Fast and Furious, not this. You know, when's that coming out? I played a lot of like Gran Turismo. I was into like racing games on the PlayStation. So like this at the time, like, didn't really end up winning me over, uh, so I kind of see why Fast and Furious wins out. Although, there's this one, like, kind of big difference. This movie feels a little more like fiction, whereas Fast and Furious, to me, feels a little more grounded in reality. You know, in the first one, they're stealing DVD players and such, so it's, like, dated, and it existed in a realistic world, whereas this one just feels like we're dealing with superheroes and supervillains, or things of that nature. It's just a little more preposterous than those films in a way. This almost feels kind of like a video game, right? Like, it almost feels like a mission in Grand Theft Auto where you're like, okay, you have to steal 50 cars without mm-hmm. getting caught by the, or busted by the cops. As crazy as Fast and Furious movies have become, and I mean, I don't want to put them down. Like, I love, like, the, the new ones, like, they're some of my favorite movies. Like, I love, love, love them. The crazier the better. But, like, the earlier ones, like you were saying, Mike, they were grounded in reality. And it does sort of feel like kind of a thing that could happen. This does feel sort of crazy and like a little bit too big, but that also kind of adds to the overall kind of excitement factor. Yeah, I think they were sort of forcing this to be an action film in the way that they like shot it. For a movie about stealing cars, there's not a lot of car chases, you know, there's, you know, like a foot chase, there's things going on, but yeah, I was kind of surprised that there weren't more stunts and stuff like that happening. One other thing that I want to say about the movie before we really start talking about it is that it kind of feels like Fast and the Furious meets Ocean's Eleven, like they kind of have to get the gang back together. Cage plays this guy Memphis Reigns, and Giovanni Ribisi is his brother Kip. Cage is gone clean used to be the greatest car thief in the world, or at least in the Los Angeles area. Kip sort of rises up and and sort of kind of takes his throne. He's not as good as Cage, but he gets into the car thievery ring. The movie starts and he kind of gets into trouble. He has, He's doing this job for this guy, right? And he gets busted. The warehouse where they have all the cars gets raided. The guy he was supposed to do the job for says takes him and he's like you need to steal 50 cars or we're gonna kill you, right? Like that's sort of the central plot of the movie, right? That is the central plot of the movie, the idea that uh, he kind of takes up Nicolas Cage's character's mantle. It's kind of kind of almost funny because even within the first two or three scenes of the movie, he wretchedly, <laughs> wretchedly screws it up on a drag race, a meaningless drag race in a stolen car. And that's what begins the foil of his stealing all these cars for this guy and getting into trouble. He's, like, super brazen about it, too, right? Like, he feels like he's invincible. Uh, He asks for his, like, car-breaking-in tool, and they hand him a brick. (laughs) And he throws the brick through the window of a dealership and drives, like, the Porsche out of the dealership. And then has, like, the nerve to, you know, race some guy on the street. And then, like, has to evade the cops. Like, yeah, the guy is, like, all kinds of trouble. And he might think he's being 
being like his brother, it's like this false emulation kind of thing, right? Like he's not really doing it right. Like he thinks this is what his brother's like. So the guy he's boosting all the cars for is uh, Christopher Eccleston. I mostly know him for being sort of like the comeback Doctor Who. This is sort of, I don't know, he looks really young here. And uh, he's like this British criminal that's got like kicked out of Europe. (laughs) Like That's what I gathered. Like he's so bad he was kicked out of Europe and uh, set up base (laughs) in Long Beach. And he fancies himself like a carpenter. He actually makes stuff out of wood and everything, right? And they call him the carpenter. And he puts Kip in in a car and is going to like crush him to death. I was like, that that was pretty pretty cool. This kind of comes at a time where like the movie villains sort of had to have a thing like they couldn't just be like evil masterminds they had to like have something unique about him like that's i guess that's why he is the carpenter it's not enough that he's just like this guy who's willing to kill to steal cars and he needs 50 cars stolen like he also needs to be good at something that's sort of like quirky like i feel like in a lot of ways like in terms of, like the font that's used on screen the way that people are dressed <laughs> like this movie is very clearly set in an era like it's it's early 2000s definitively for both good and bad reasons like it's it's fun and it's sort of i don't want to say it's like futuristic but like it's sort of a shift from um, the last few movies that Cage has done that they sort of they didn't really feel too 90s that the action movies were the hallmark of the action genre but it's not like they could sort of be from any time like this feels very firmly like a year 2000 kind of movie the more I kind of think about it, Joey, like the more I might be turning on whether or not this feels like that Bruckheimer feel to me, you know, the further we're getting along, like I'm wondering, is this the Bruckheimer trilogy's, you know, part three? Because that what you said there, like it is kind of like futuristic, like the way especially The Rock felt for me, you know, even in there where they were getting into like science fiction for real, they were crossing lines towards the end of that film with their technology and just their theories and stuff. So I definitely hear what you're saying about that, and it, and it makes it feel different. And it's also more of an expose on that sort of greaser culture. You know, these guys aren't as clean as, um, like, Vin Diesel and his crew. Like, those guys are into more, like, decals on their car and, you know, drinking Coronas and tanning. And these guys, like, <laughs> never leave the garage, and they're covered in grease, and they're always, like, real slick and dirty looking, too. So that vibe gives it sort of an edge to it as well. So we mentioned Cage's brother, Giovanni Ribisi, and he's kind of like one problem I have with this movie. Like, Giovanni Ribisi, as an actor, sort of seems like he's down for whatever. Like, he almost seems like Cage in that way. It sort of makes sense that they're brothers because they're sort of, their range is kind of crazy. And it bothers me that he's so whiny and not a great, interesting character. Like, they, they have this really talented actor, and they sort of put him in this corner and don't really let him do much except for kind of look up to Big Brother. Yeah, the character is kind of one-dimensional. He really doesn't have a wide range of emotion besides, oh, hey, you're, even when he's talking about his emotions towards his brother coming back home, he has just one monotone voice he does they, they didn't really give him i feel like much to do script wise yeah i i agree he just sort of resents his brother uh you know the entire <laughs> movie he kind of mopes around it he's almost just used as a device to drag memphis nick cage's character into the film right into the story it's like once we have nick cage in here verbisi sort of falls a little to the wayside so it's kind of like two movies in a row almost where the co-star is just there to service nick cage's character like we had in bringing out the dead we had patricia arquette there just to sort of give cage an arc and here 
Gene finally Rabisi doesn't really have much to do aside from get in trouble and then necessitate the, the gang needing to get back together. I wish that this main character, arguably the second most important character in the movie, I wish he had more to do. Yeah, I wish they had given some of the attributes and some of the work that they give to the other characters to him there are a lot of characters to service in this film you know and he does get more time than most of them but you're right he he's the brother there should be just more development there i feel like they try right further on into the film they sort of team these two up more and more like as it go, as it goes along but there isn't a whole lot really to set up aside from you're in trouble i'm here to get you out of trouble and you know let's just go do that and like what's weird is that there's an inherent conflict here that Kip thinks Memphis abandoned him, that he just sort of left him to do his own thing, when in reality we learn at the end of the movie that his mother sort of had him get out of town so that Kip wouldn't fall under bad influences. But we never really get, like, a huge blow-up between the two. Like, imagine if... I mean, there's great sexual chemistry and sort of sexual tension when Cage and Angelina Jolie are out stealing cars, but if it was the two of them in the car, like, they could have some really great, meaty scenes, brother versus brother sort of learning the, the truth of what's happened, and we just don't get that. Yeah, if anything, he be, he's, like, too helpful, you know? Like, they, they actually let him participate in getting himself out of trouble. So one thing that I like about this movie that we really haven't seen in a lot of other Cage Club movies is that the cops are actually pretty competent. It's not one of these movies where, like, it's not a Michael Bay movie where he's down with law enforcement or whatever. <laughs> the two cops investigating Cage and his crew are Delroy Lindo and Timothy Oliphant. They're both, like, really good and really knowledgeable and, like, able to keep up with this gang. They know a lot about cars. They're good at picking up on clues. They're keeping up with everything. And I feel like we've sort of seen, especially in movies, you know, like Trapped in Paradise and Red Rock West, the cops in Cage Club, unless Cage is a cop, the cops have pretty much been bumbling buffoons or just sort of incompetent. And so it's kind of a refreshing change of pace to see two guys that we know and love but also just to see two cops that were really good at their job. They're almost too good. I mean, they come close <laughs> to catching them several times, not to mention they they catch them in the act a whole bunch of times. There's there's a scene late in the movie where uh, two of the crew members are stealing a Hummer, and the police are actually, they have them cornered, if not for the fact that the two thieves are in a Hummer and push them off an on-ramp. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would go back to, to Con Air. I mean, I think John Cusack's, character even though he wasn't necessarily a cop was not particularly crazy confident but also not the worst but yeah the, the two cops in this movie are are relentless and really intelligent to take it even further how good they are at their job like w when they find out like all roads sort of lead to the carpenter their boss comes in and is like you guys are too good at your job you're like getting in the way of us <laughs> and like our investigation you know you gotta back off back off so they're like ah man we just gotta stick to the the carjacking so yeah you're right and i and i like these guys like they're kind of fun you know they don't make them boring that one guy knows memphis from way back and has always been chasing him so it's sort of like his uh, moby dick in a way and he's got a young partner and you get like a lot of this sort of old school new school dynamic from those guys as well as from you know the actual crew of uh, carjackers that we get to know that sort of segues us into where we meet cage that cage was this notorious car thief 
they say that after he left or after he gave it up, Grand Theft Auto went down by like forty seven percent, which means that he's stealing like <laughs> he's stealing so many cars. What's actually kind of cool is we see Cage in a new light. Like we see Cage with a bunch of kids. Like we've seen him in a lot of movies with like a son or a daughter but not necessarily with a group of kids. We cut to him kind of giving this little motivational speech about how you have to have control and vision and determination. And we know that this is a movie about stealing cars, and there's like any number of people that you could think he could be giving the speech to, and then the camera pans around, and it's just a bunch of kids getting ready for a go-kart race. And like it's a cool reversal that we see, especially now as Cage kind of begins to enter near where he's going to start doing kids' movies and family-friendly movies. It's kind of cool to see him in this new light. Control. Vision. Determination. These are the three fundamental components of the new generation race car driver. Speed is a byproduct. Going fast. But remember, the car is you. You are the car. Okay? Let's ride! Yeah, I didn't really think about it at the time, but you're totally right. Like, he's so comfortable around them, too, you know? Like, when he's, like, charging them up, and he's like, let's get out there and let's get racing, you know? And when the one kid sort of turns the car around the wrong way, he's, like, running out there and, like, giving him advice and everything like that. It also sets up his character, like, immediately, that this is a guy who's pretty happy, he's reformed, he's found a quiet life, you know? This is about as far away from where he's going to end up as possible. But it's also this cute little foreshadowing where we have these kids driving these go-karts. We're going to have like these adults acting sort of like these kids, like driving these real cars later on, crashing into things and stuff. What I kind of liked about this, or in, in terms of, you know, in terms of comparing this to Fast and the Furious, I just got a sense that like in the first movie, when Brian O'Connor goes to and he first like meets Mia, they're kind of at like a little gas station out in the middle of the desert in the middle of nowhere. And that's kind of like where this is, too. It's nothing but a coincidence because the Fast and Furious wasn't out yet. And I don't think that they copied that for this or from this or whatever. I just thought it was kind of cool because I'm just looking for comparisons between the two movies. The other one is that kind of, especially in certain shots, Cage, at least his hair, kind of looks like Paul Walker. What I noticed immediately is the blonde hair on Cage, which I think that's a first, right? I mean, Cameron Poe had very long blonde hair, I think it was, but it was kind of a dirtier blonde. But this is like millennium bleached blonde. You know, I I saw this all throughout high school, and and that was in the 90s. I mean, it was really kicking ass around the year 2000. Yeah, the frosted hair was really, like, just, you know, popular and stuff. So, I don't know. I think there's something about the blonde cage that might be tricking your eye. That might be it. Not only that, I mean, Angelina Jolie has bleach blonde hair, like crazy, nearly white hair in this movie. Yeah, dreadlocks, no less, right? Yeah. Could you get any more stylized? Yeah. Talk about, like, being set or trapped in, like, the turn of the century. Like, there's, there's a lot of things in this movie that, like, if somebody who didn't live through this time period looked at this movie, they would think a lot of this stuff is crazy. But you look back, you're like, oh, yeah, like, that, that's just what people did. Like, that was the fashion, that was whatever. Do kids um, know so- DMX these days? <laughs> oh, forget DMX. Oh, and the DMX, Did they know DMX on a cassette tape. <laughs> yeah, well, DMX, yeah, it's on a cassette tape when he puts it in. What strikes me about this movie is something that also struck me about the production of the Superman Lives film, which never got off the ground, and that is sort of this 
idea of like extremeness, you know, like everything just pushed to the extreme. And I kind of get that from this film as well, right? Like everybody is just like an extreme version of them. Like Angelina Jolie, let's stick with her for an example, like her funky hair, you know, her bad attitude. Like everybody just seems like extreme to me. I wrote down very early on that everyone here knows what kind of movie this is. Like there's going to be tons of one-liners. There are going to be people cheesing for the camera. There's going to be crazy wardrobe choices and acting choices, and everything's over the top, and that's, like, totally okay, because this is not a movie to be taken seriously. This is a movie where a group of people tries to steal 50 cars in 12 hours to save a guy from getting crushed in a car crusher. What's weird about Christopher Eccleston, about Raymond Kalitri's plan in this movie, is that Kip failed to steal him the cars he needed, and so he's going to give Cage and his crew a shot to steal the cars. But it's not like they're doing it just to save Kip's life. Like, they're also going to get $200,000? Like, it's a weird... <laughs> like, it seems like... like Alright, so, if you do this for me... We'll let your brother live and also hear some money. Like, it seems like it should be one or the other. You know what I mean? Like, originally they were going to pay 200 grand, but now they just don't have to. Like, do this or else we'll kill him. On this list, you'll find 50 cars, 5-0. I need all 50 delivered to Long Beach Harbor, Pier 14, by 8 a.m. four days from now. I'm paying $200,000. I'm not interested. I'm just here for my brother. Young Kip came to me. He had street cred. The brother of the notorious Memphis Reigns. So two weeks ago, I hired him and advanced him $10,000. Hadley told me. If it's about the advance, I can understand your anger. The debt has to be settled. Ten grand. Me to you. I wish it was that easy. I don't see the complication. I have four days to deliver 50 cars and I have no cars. Well, that's another problem. It's another problem, isn't it? It's about me delivering 50 top-end cars because I said I would. Because if I don't, my South American friend goes somewhere else from now on. And that's not good. It's a humiliation. Because I'm the arsehole who said I could deliver. Am I an arsehole? Do I look like an arsehole? Yeah. The funny thing about his request, you, you steal the cars and you make the money. I think it all ravels into there's a little sequence where he explains to him his choices. He tells him, you kill me, and then they, they kill you, and then your brother dies. Or you say yes, we find you, and we kill you, and we kill your family. Or, you know, you steal cars, your brother lives, and you make some money. I think it all it worked better when thinking about that line in particular. Yeah, and I also think that the carpenter understands that Memphis was once a criminal as well, and there's sort of this code of thieves going on here that I like to <laughs> look for. Something you know, I like to just you know, I just feel like these bad guys, you know, they have a code, right? And and this might just be part of his is that I respect what you can do. You know, you're a man that can do what I need, and it's you know, I am not. I'm not going to kill you. Not only am I not going to kill you, but like I'm going to pay you. That's how how I sort of saw it at first. Later on, where I was like, where is the carpenter? He sort of hasn't shown up for a while. I was like, maybe he's making more caskets and just is going to kill everybody anyway at the end. <laughs> so they kind of begin to get the crew together, and it's kind of like Ocean's Eleven. Like, now Cage is back in the picture. You know, George Clooney's back in town. <laughs> We're going to get the gang back together. They start to call a bunch of people, but, like, what's kind of weird is that they call people and they say no, or, like, the guy's just not around. Like, it's oh, not just people yeah. saying yes. They call people and, like, oh, no, like, he's dead. Or, like, the other person's like, oh, no, he's been out of town. He went with that other guy, who, the dead guy. So, like, he's probably dead, too. And then they finally get to the last two names on the list. It's the Sphinx and Sway. 
And they're just like, oh, no, like, we can't get them. <laughs> of course, you know, in a movie like this, you're absolutely going to get Sphinx and Sway. His first guy that he goes to is Otto, right? Like, he goes to his first choice, I guess. He's got the list, and Robert Duvall plays Otto. I mean, he was like an old-timer when Cage was probably a young guy, right? And so he, like, he's the old, old-timer of this film, I guess you could say. Together, they try and track down the gang, and right, most people are, like, dead or in jail. <laughs> just was like, I just thought that was, like, a great joke though you know i don't know like what are they gonna do now like they have to do like new recruits kind of things but yeah when they get to like people with only code names you know that like those are gonna be like some badass characters so like sphinx and sway (laughs) i guess the writer was having an an s day that day (laughs) when he was naming people it's also a uh, fun to note that like Every single person on the list is either not available or dead. So that says worlds about the old, you know, thieves they used to hang out with that none of them are available or dead or, you know, doing it anymore. Yeah, it's a good thing Cage left town when he did, right? (laughs) The fact that everybody's dead or gone does not stop them from amassing a crew of, like, I don't know, 15 people. There are just so many people. Like, they even bring in somebody whose only job, and I know it's kind of a joke, but, like, whose only job is to order pizza? Like, they have so many guys. They have too many guys for this job. Like, think about it. Like, you got to boost 50 cars, and it, they wait until the last 24 hours to do it, you know? <laughs> like, well, well for, yeah. for good reason, though. Yeah, for good reason. So I'm, I, you need a lot of guys. I mean, maybe 10 is a little overboard. So I don't know if they were trying to stretch it out to be more like Ocean's Eleven. Uh, at one point, there are 11 people in the room when they're going down <laughs> the heist because of Otto's wife. I'm wondering, did they just throw her in that shot because of that? And yeah, people become redundant. Like, you have Kip's crew and you have Memphis's crew. Kip has, like, two... Two hackers on his crew, and I'm like, what do you need two hackers for? You guys have any skills at all? Please. Yeah, we have skills. We uh, Mirror Man here, he's an electronics expert. You know, he, he's got some gadgets that, that you old farts probably never heard of. You know, uh, Tumblr over here, he can pretty much drive anything with wheels and, you know, some things without wheels. <laughs> and, uh, and Toby, he's a computer genius. He's, he's, he does fascinating things with computers. What exactly can you do with the computer, Toby? I can hack into the DMV mainframe. I can change VIN numbers. I can change addresses, registrations. I can do a lot of really tricky stuff. I can't. All right, all right. We do this, we do it my way. I run the show. You take your orders from me. If you have any problems with that, you can leave now. No, that's fine. Well, who is is Gilligan and and what does he do? Uh, Gilligan is actually Freb. Freb can order pizzas like nobody's business. What? That's true. Hey, people gotta eat, right? And this is also at the time where, like, it wasn't immediately apparent that you needed a hacker. The cage is like, well, what can you do? He's like, I can go in the DMV database, I can change VIN numbers, I can get addresses. The cage's like, all right, I guess. <laughs> that makes sense. But he goes to Sway's garage. You know that there's, like, a history here that he says something to her while she's under the car, and you don't know who Sway is, so you don't know that it's a girl. It's, just some, it's a pair of legs working on a car. And then Angelina Jolie, with her bleach blonde dreadlocks, comes out and has no time for Cage's shit. She's like, I'm late for work. I got to get out of here. Follows her to the bar. Like, they kind of have, like, in a movie where, like, a lot of the relationships aren't as well-defined as they could be, I think that this is sort of one of the stronger pairings in the movie. You're still looking amazing. Well, you look like a Bible salesman. You're healed. Can we... Improvise a little sure. bit. Sure. What do you have in mind? You want to get a little crazy? There's a cutlass 442 in the back. We can strip down and shine the hood. 
What do you say? Uh, that's not what I had in mind. It's about my brother. Kip's in trouble. In trouble. Took a boost. You blew it. And you got some Italians. Five or six. Right. It's 50 ladies in 24 hours. $200,000. Well, I've cleaned up. Yeah, you can definitely sense the tension between the two characters. As soon as she slides out from under the car and takes one look at him, and she's just like, oh, I got to get back to work. Yeah, I think that's a testament to these guys being good actors, right? There's really not a whole lot to go on, and they pull everything out of it that's possible, really. Uh, you get the sense more from Angelina Jolie than anyone else that Cage left her behind as well, you know? She didn't just leave Kip. It's like he hurt her maybe just as bad she's damaged as well and you know he's got stuff to make up for and you don't really get that from the rest of his buddies per se right but she's given it and and it's working yeah every other character seems to have a very positive meet with the memphis character when he sees him robert duvall seems pretty ecstatic to see him when Don, when he gets the call to Donnie, Donnie's pretty happy. Sphinx just, you know, he pushes a button to say that he's there on the phone and then, <laughs> then shows up in front of the bar and, and blows up somebody's car because he likes him so much. So yeah, it's really the only, like, negative first meet. Giovanni Ribisi looks pretty darn surprised when he sees him at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> then again, he's being crushed in a giant car crusher at the time. Right. Yeah, like, there's this whole thread throughout the movie of, like, this rival car theft gang it never really pays off like they show up to angelina jolie's bar and they start trouble and then sphinx blows their car up as they're beating up cage cage is outside this bar getting beat up it's like one against five the same guy who wrote this wrote con air and that's how con air starts like (laughs) this writer just loves putting cage against a bunch of guys outside a bar and just seeing what'll happen but Sphinx shows up, blows up the car, chases them off. Later in the movie, they, like, corner Cage and Giovanni Ribisi at a restaurant. They show up, like, one other time, but, like, they don't really serve too much of a purpose. Like, it doesn't necessarily build the world. It's just, like, a way to put another obstacle in this gang's path. Yeah, that chase scene, foot chase scene, isn't anything too ridiculous. The, the sequence that comes after at the little donut shop is amusing. But, yeah, they really don't add too much to the plot. Yeah, so this is Johnny B in the gang, right? And and Johnny B is played by rapper extraordinaire Master P. I don't know if you guys are you know know any of his work, but he's you know part of that down south sound. Uh, and it's just funny that we last movie we had Queen Latifah, so this is two movies in a row where we have rapper actors uh, <laughs> going on here. Yeah, I wrote down you know this is just one thread too many. I understand already that Memphis being back in town is dangerous. He's got the the cops on his tail he's got these you know british guys you know watching him making sure he's gonna do his job i don't, I don't need like the local gangbangers to be getting involved i almost felt like when they brought him back it was just a chance to do one of those garden chases like point break and then they do the same gag that richard dreyfus does from american graffiti where they like he hooks his car up to a tow truck or something and then when they try to drive away or the tow truck drives away splits the car in half like what's kind of weird about this movie is that we're now like 45 minutes into the movie and there hasn't been much action there was the original chase where rabisi steals the porsche and drives off and gets into that little street race for a movie about stealing 50 cars like there's very little action like 45 minutes in this is sort of the point in the movie where things kind of flip and they kind of start to 
get their plan in motion. I think my favorite scene in the entire movie is when Cage goes to the Ferrari dealership. He's acting like this high roller who's just trying to get a little bit more information about Ferraris. Like, it's a completely different... Like, we talk about in other episodes, Mike, how you like having Cage as two roles for one. I mean, we only get this one in this scene, but, like, he's so much more animated and excited. I love this scene. My name's Roger, sir. May I be of some help? That's funny. My name's Roger. Two Rogers don't make a right. <laughs> Roger, I have a problem. Yes. I've been in L.A. for three months now. I have money, I have taste. But I'm not on anybody's A-list, and Saturday night is the loneliest night of the week for me. Well, a Ferrari would certainly change that. Perhaps. Hmm. But you know, this is the one. Yes, yes, yes. I saw three of these parked outside the local Starbucks this morning, which tells me only one thing. There's too many self-indulgent wieners in this city with too much bloody money. Now, if I was driving a 1967 275 GTB4 cam, you would not be a self-indulgent wiener, sir. You would be a connoisseur. Precisely. Champagne would fall from the heavens, doors would open, velvet ropes would part. I don't have one here. However, I do have one in the warehouse. Superb. What else do you have in the warehouse? Yeah, this is uh, Undercover Cage, you know? <laughs> this is his character pretending to be another character. Uh, and I love every any time we could get, like, a dual personality role out of him is great. We, You know, Joey, like, I've this is the stuff that, like, I've been waiting for, you know? When he breaks character and just has fun, and this scene was just meant for laughs, and, and he pulls it off so well. And he's playing that businessman again, you know? <laughs> sort of that rich ass wipe. I got, I got vibes of uh, Vampire's Kiss again, once again. <laughs> from that just this guy putting on airs this part was great you know maybe my favorite part of the movie now when you say asswipe are you talking about asswipe johnson (laughs) as they're sort of gearing up it's not immediately clear that sway is going to join them but she gets there just in time because of course she's going to get there just in time like this kind of movie wouldn't introduce a character who's not going to be part of the heist she gets there they're sort of out doing surveillance, and this is when they get into that little bit of trouble with the gang. We talked about it already, but like, there's one point that I want to make sure that we bring up. It's that when they're on that garden chase, like the foot chase through the backyards, the bad guys blow up a chicken with a shotgun. <laughs> there's a lot of gunfire in this movie that's just willy-nilly. Not only this, but like later in the movie when they're stealing the car from that private residence area, and like the security guard, the rent-a-cop is shooting guns. Like People in this movie have no regard for like where it's appropriate to shoot guns. In this chase... Cage and Rabisi are running away and they're jumping over fences, and a guy takes a shotgun and just shoots at them, and the chicken just explodes into a mess of feathers. I wasn't so much confused as to why the chicken was shot, but more as to why there was a chicken at all. There seemed to be, like, an entire coop, like, in this backyard area, and there was also a couple dogs as well. After my brain was like, you know, that really is like a chicken exploding, (laughs) I kind of sort of rationalized it as, you know, just more kind of chaos, like, where could we just throw in stuff flying around at some point? And I think as far as your casual gunplay thing goes, is like, these guys to me are just gangbangers, you know? And, like, movies are just going to portray them as, like, we shoot all the time. Well, you know, we shoot to turn off the TV at night. Like, we are just attached to our guns. A lot of the characters in this movie kind of are not one-dimensional necessarily, but, like, they're there for their purpose. So if these guys are the type of guys who are just out and aggressive and after people and chasing people... It makes sense that they're just going to be shooting guns around just because they can, so I'm okay with that. I buy your explanation. I'm much happier seeing Master P 
shooting a gun than doing, you know, an Oscar-winning performance. <laughs> I'm just wondering why there's a foot chase in a movie about stealing cars at all. Like, I mean, I'm not really complaining, but there should just be, there should have been a car chase by now. I'm, at least that's one thing Fast and Furious had going for it, I think, is, you know, they race a lot in that movie, you know? There's a lot of racing. And in this one, there's a lot of, like, scouting and sort of planning and that kind of stuff. <laughs> not, not, and even when they start boosting cars, like, is they don't really, you know, get chased a lot or at all, really. And there's just like a climactic car chase, which is cool and kicks ass, and, and that's awesome, and we'll get to that. But yeah, I'm just wondering why it's a foot chase and at least not a motorcycle chase. Yeah, the funny thing about it is it's based on a movie where how long is the chase, the final chase <laughs> sequence in the original yeah. Dawn 60 Seconds? It's long. At least like a good half hour. Throughout that movie, it sort of has the same issues as this one where there is planning and stuff like that as well but they get to the boosting a lot sooner and it's much more of like an independent film you know it only feels like a exploitation film to a degree and it was made by stuntmen as well so when the chases start they are like crazy crashes and things like that nature you know you get like the end of the blues brothers like times a hundred speaking of stunts did you guys know that cage did most of his own stunt driving for this film I did. A lot of the other cast also took stunt driving lessons. They were not as into it as Cage. But I think that this is just another example of Cage fully committing to a movie. He's in it to win it. He's going to do whatever he wants to do. And if that requires him going to three different driving schools to make sure that he can do stunts in this movie, that's what he's going to do. From what I've read, he became a very big racing enthusiast after the film. It became almost like sort of a hobby for him. So that's him driving backwards. I think so. (laughs) That's cool. Another thing that just sort of piles on what Dan just said is that there's kind of like the holy grail, the white whale for Cage's movie is this car named Eleanor. And the way that they talk about it in this movie, they have a different woman's name for every car. Because when they're on the radio, if anybody happens to be listening in, they're not saying, you know, I'm bringing the Ferrari, I'm bringing this, I'm bringing that. They're just hearing girls' names. So it could be sort of anything. So Cage's white whale is the 67 Shelby GT500 that they call Eleanor. And for this movie, they had seven Eleanors, and they wrecked five of them. The other two that made it through this movie, Cage took one and Jerry Bruckheimer took one. You're always asked, like, what do people sort of get from a movie? Like, Cage walked away from this movie with a really nice car. There's a red sports car in this film, right? I mean, there's got to be, right? There's got to be. <laughs> but that's crazy that they had seven movie cars for this one car this car does not look like it was cheap at all you know i mean it is a beautiful car and i'm sure it was a lot of fun for him to drive as well well apparently a lot of the cars were they weren't the actual car they were they were cars made to look like the car Ah, yes. Okay. Yeah, I should have (laughs) known. They're not going to destroy seven actual cars. (laughs) The last version of this car shown in in the film was one of the only true Shelby GT500s. It was in the very, one of the last scenes of the movie. So they're they're trying to steal 50 cars, but they maybe only show half of that half that they show, maybe three quarters of them they're stealing with no problem. So it's not like they have to pay for these cars. Like they could just like rent them for the day. The Shelby, the Eleanor, the the one that they sort of need to have the the real deal, the authentic, and it makes sense that they would have seven. That this is sort of where I'm imagining where a lot of the film's ninety million dollar budget went into is buying seven of these exact perfect 1967 Shelby GTs. 
Was it really that much? This budget, ninety million, and wow. it, it barely made it back. Apparently, it made just a, a little over a hundred million in the U.S. So it wasn't like a huge hit, but yeah, ninety million. There wow. are a lot of stars in this film. <laughs> you know, I mean, just between Duval and Jolie and Cage alone, just between the three of those guys, and then you got like the up and comers like Scott Kahn and Giovanni Ribisi. And uh, so I, uh, maybe some of the money went to getting them too. Bruckheimer just isn't afraid to just spend money man I, that's kind of what i love about the guy you know it's like say what you will about the way they turn out at least he swings for the fences whenever he makes a movie you got to spend money to make money and he's there's no problem trying to make money by spending <laughs> lots and lots of money so we're about halfway through the movie there's the first scene that there's supposed to be a lot of tension delroy lindo shows up at their warehouse but you know that nothing serious is going to really happen to them like they can't get arrested now we're only halfway through the movie. They haven't sold any cars. So there's not, like, a ton of tension here. The big fallout from this scene is that Cage doesn't want to be stealing cars again, right? That he's sort of been roped back into this world because of his idiot little brother. And he goes on this little tirade, and he screams at all the people in the, in the crew. And he tells them that their decision-making privileges have been revoked. You've got to stop doing your own thing. If we're ever going to be successful in this, we got to do it my way. Otherwise, things aren't going to happen. What, what are we going to do with this? I was going to bonk it. Bonk? For the next 24 hours, all your decision-making privileges have been removed. You got it? Got it. Yeah, it's cool, man. Obviously, they're on to us. He's sniffing real close. If anything tonight appears out of place, I want you to cut bait, get out of there, and walk away. The sequence where the, the detective comes in, one of the younger crew members has stolen a car from a not-so-nice neighborhood with the keys in it to prove a point on how he could steal a car. And then one of the other crew members finds a, a, a big bag of heroin in the <laughs> trunk. And that's the exact moment when the detective decides to come knocking. Khan picks up a, a pipe and is going to hit him over the head, and Nicolas Cage is telling him no. Just just a whole bunch of very poor decisions by the young guys. And this is the morning of the heist and everything, and um, everything is falling apart before it even starts, <laughs> and, you know? I like Cage's little explosion. I like him taking charge, you know, sort of for the first time. He's like, all right, for real, don't do anything unless I tell you to you know i'm the boss he's assuming that leadership role my way or the highway then they yeah i don't know if all of this cop business comes across as, as tense at all because you're right joey like we know he's not going to arrest them like what's he even doing there is he just playing games with these guys like they weren't aware that the cops were onto him but now they're sure aware the cops are onto him you know is delroy linda just trying to like make more of a game out of this situation i, I don't know why he goes in there I think this goes back to Dan saying like they're like they're too good at their job. You know what I mean? That they're <laughs> they got to make it hard on themselves. <laughs> they got to make it hard on themselves. Like they got to be like, all right, like I. They're basically saying we know that you're doing something, and now you know that we know. So like tonight, tonight's going to be extra fun for everybody. At this time, we also see that they've been investigating. Like they have an informant. They found out about these laser cut keys, right? Something about that. Like they they go to a dealership. They shake down this guy, and the guy's like, "Oh, like uh, this boxer-looking kid comes in, and you know we made out a deal." And they're they're off doing their job in their own movie, and they've got like all these leads going on. Maybe they are just trying to make it harder on themselves. 
Mercedes. Yeah, they need to steal, I think, like three Mercedes and the new Mercedes. They have like this big, like a lot of this movie feels like explanation of technology at a time when people didn't understand technology, really. <laughs> There's these three Mercedes they need to steal. And apparently the Mercedes, the way that it starts up is the, the ignition like reads. It's, it's, it's basically got a computer in there and it reads a laser cut key. And that's how you start the engine up. They find out that Scott Kahn is the one, the boxer-looking kid, going to this guy, paying $500 a key, getting these Mercedes keys and being able to boost whatever kind of car. That all the other ones, they can sort of hotwire, sort of do their old-fashioned kind of tricks, but these newfangled Mercedes-Benz, they need a little bit more, and that sort of gives them a big tip-off and a big sort of lead as to where these guys might be hitting tonight. You know what's funny about the whole Mercedes and the the laser-cut key thing and how the cops put it together? When Cage and his crew figure out that the police are on to them and the Mercedes, somehow, miraculously, one of the crew members, I think it's Donnie in the movie, immediately knows that that is what the police have done. For no apparent reason at all, he knows this. That, like, the cops found somebody at the dealership and turned them. Maybe that's why he's in the gang in the first place, because he has, like, this Professor X-type power where he, he knows things before anyone else does. He's just able to use his intuition and put two and two together. Almost like a, a sixth sense for knowing that the police know a lot more than they do. Probably why he's still alive and was still on the list. <laughs> the crew is assembled, the plan is laid out, we're running out of time, the thing's going to start. Just kind of like this great little montage where Cage opens up a box, pulls out his leather jacket, it's sort of like they put it away in storage when he gave up the car thief business, pulls the jacket out, and he just says, I am a bad man. And then Lowrider comes on, and then they just go start stealing cars. And... <laughs> There's not much to talk about here. They're just all really good at stealing cars. Like, no matter what kind of car it is, no matter, you know, where it's located, what they have to do to get it, everybody in this crew is just really good at stealing cars. It's weird that, like, we've waited an hour for them to start stealing cars, and then it seems like they steal, like, 40 cars in six minutes. Like, they, they get so much done so quickly that, like, they waited till the last night so that the cops wouldn't catch on to what they're doing and really raise the heat level. They also could wait till the last night just because they're all exceptionally good at what they do. Yeah, like you were saying with the technology before, they're, they're popping hoods to these cars and inserting little plugs and taking off the headlight covers and poking into the electronics in the headlight, and all of a sudden, magically, the cars start. You know, like the title suggests, you got to be gone in 60 seconds, you know? Like, if it takes 60 seconds to steal one car, and then you factor in the time it takes to drive that to the boat and put it in the giant container and get to the next car, I mean, I think it's possible to steal this many cars if you just nonstop. The problem I have is that they start with only 12 hours to go. Like, they do all this prep work that doesn't seem like prep work like i'm wondering why they didn't just like steal the cars the night before now they got to deal with the cops and like all this pressure and all this time restraints uh, and joey you're right like the boosting isn't very exceptional like it's not extraordinary like it just feels like very one two three in and out i don't know i almost wish like they ran into more complications they showed a more variety did something i mean this is the time to add in like car chases and raising stakes and that type of stuff i don't know it's something something feels like it's missing to me there's a lot of excitement in this movie and there's a lot of fun to be had but like the pacing from start to finish is just all off like, there's not enough action, and then there's, like, too much too quick, but it's not, like, great action, and then it ties back down, 
And then we kind of have this final 20 or 30 minute action scene for a movie about stealing cars, for a movie where there's so many conflicts in terms of the cops and this rival gang with Master P and all these different groups trying to get to Cage and trying to stop what he's doing. There's so many ways that you could add conflict to this movie. And the way that they do, instead of making it exciting, is like, oh, the dog ate the keys. And now the dog has to poop (laughs) it out. Yeah, not only yeah. that, but like right before then, they're like, "Oh well," you, like I was saying before, the the Mercedes are are I think he calls the cars dirty. That the cops are already there and onto them. They, they have that whole sequence where they have to figure out what they're going to do, and then they end up breaking into the police impound lot, and then the dog eats, or maybe right before then, the dog eats the keys, and they have to follow the dog and have it poop it out. Just yeah, very strange with the pacing. Yeah, I, I wrote down this movie is not about stealing cool cars, you know? Like, the movie's more about, like, brothers and friendship and brotherhood and, you know... Having... Dare you say family? <laughs> I was just about to say family. <laughs> I'm not even kidding, though, you know? And it's like, all this stealing stuff, is it supposed to be one giant metaphor of some kind to me? It just feels, like, so secondary to the story they really want to be telling. I get this other sense that it's just, you know, at times concerned with being cool, right? Like, all it wants to do is, like, be cool. Like, let's have a cool car drive away with, like, fire spitting out the exhaust tail. And, like, that's it. Like, let's just get one shot of it. Like, so we have it. I don't know. It gets a little confusing to me. I don't know. I think that's the main problem, right? Like, it's trying to... It's telling this extended metaphor, maybe. It's trying to be cool. But, like, there's so many opportunities to add in anything. That especially with a couple movies we've seen recently most notably Bringing Out the Dead, and also even going back to the previous movie this guy wrote, Con Air, there are so many characters in both those movies, and we know exactly who all of them are. Here, like, there's just sort of a bunch of guys, and it's like they never take the time to really flesh anything out or to really make a point about anything. He's trying to do too much. Like, he's trying to be too many things and trying to check off too many boxes. In the end, he kind of checks off none of them. Yeah, it's all kind of just pushing the ball towards the hole, but not, you know, just, you know, little fingers just holding up the ball as it keeps going. Nothing nothing really solid that, you know, gives it a good push. I almost felt like they have too many cars to steal. You know, why did they have to go with 50 just because the original movie went with, had like 48 or 50 cars? You know, I, I feel like if they had made it, you know, we got to steal 10 or 20 of these exotic, hard to reach cars that are scattered throughout Los Angeles or Long Beach. Or you know what I mean? Like if they were just harder to get to and there were less of them, I think it would have been more dramatic and there would have been more stakes and we would have had more time to spend getting to develop these characters a little deeper. The other kind of problem, and it gets into like the next kind of cool scene, is that because there's so many characters, and even though none of them are really well-defined, we don't really spend time with a lot of different characters. Like, we have Angelina Jolie, who's a big star at the time. She's one of the better-defined characters in this movie, at least, you know, through her assumed relationship with Cage, and we don't really see her until she and Cage are trying to steal that car from that couple's house. Going back to Con Air again, Buscemi has his two scenes, but, like, they're memorable. You know what I mean? Like, we're not, like, hungry to get back to them, because we know that when he's on screen, we're going to remember it. The same thing with Bing Reigns, the same thing with Malkovich, the same thing with Dave Chappelle, with all these guys, whenever they're on screen, we know who they are, and we're not wondering what they're doing. Like, here, why are you going to get Angelina Jolie if she's only going to be in two scenes where she has any dialogue? Why? Like, what? <laughs> what's your goal here? I mean, that's really interesting. Like, you're right. I, I, I 
kind of feel like they got these people because the roles are so thin and so light that you need someone who can bring with them a personality or a persona that's already publicly known to them. You know, like Robert Duvall, his character Otto isn't really doing anything except for checking off names on a list the whole movie, right? But he's Robert effing Duvall, you know? Like, you know <laughs> he's a badass. Like, he has kicked ass in movies his whole life. So he brings with him this sense of respect to to everything he kind of does and and immediately he just can draw from from those years of experience and Jolie is sort of like someone who can do that without having very much experience I, I think at this time she had won her Oscar for Girl Interrupted you know so right. so she was sort of exceptionally talented to to begin with but yeah it, it, they're trying to personalize each character with the person who they cast you know so it's like Nick Cage like kind of just do your Nick Cage thing you know Robert Duvall be Robert Duvall Angelina Jolie you know go wild that, that's sort of the sense I got aside from when they're at the bar, the only time where we ever see Angelina Jolie show any kind of personality whatsoever is when they're waiting to steal his car. There's a couple in this house with all glass windows and just like floor-to-ceiling window and they can't boost the car and the couple in the house starts to have sex and there's this sexual tension, the sexual chemistry between the two and Cage asks a really big question. He's like, what's better, having sex or boosting cars? And she's like, what about having sex while boosting cars? It's kind of frustrating. Like, when you have these good scenes, it's like, well, give me more of this. Like, cut down the characters, sort of combine them into one. Give me more of these cool characters. What do you think is more exciting, having sex or stealing cars? Having sex or boosting cars. Um, Well, uh, how about uh, having sex while boosting cars? Oh, that's a good line. Ooh, doesn't work on a lot of girls, though. I, I just blurted it out. I'm sorry. But you haven't answered the question. Well, you see, the problem is, how do you get over the shift? Oh. Oh, right, because the... Because uh, it gets in the way. Because you you wouldn't want to disrupt the uh, synchro mash, right? Or the throttle linkage. Straight in on six. Triple Weber carburetors bolted to each other's body structures. Well, it's time to work. Good brakes. Good brakes, too. As far as I can remember, after there's this scene, she kind of helps them steal those Ferraris from that warehouse, but, like, she doesn't really have anything else to do with the rest of the movie, does she? She rides around on that motorcycle. She uh, <laughs> she puts on lipstick. She cries when Memphis isn't back yet near the end of the movie. She she kisses that guy near the end of what she's nursing, the, the guy who gets shot in the, the Escalade. She, she's nursing him back to health. Yeah, that, that's that's about it. I love that sequence between Angelina Jolie and Nick Cage in the car where they're about to compromise and it just yep. they keep cutting back to the couple and you know they're really hammering home the whole idea you know that cars and sex are intertwined and you know, I guess ever since you know 50s teen culture people getting laid in the back seat and it'll forever be that way I thought it was kind of cool that they were going there but you're right then it, it's like coitus interruptus right like she leaves him with <laughs> blue balls and goes to boost the, the car and stuff and 
she does kind of disappear from the film where she just earned her place like in the climax if you ask me right like i almost felt like she needed to be in the car with nick cage at the end during the you know the final chase sequence yeah instead she just sort of falls back into the background in that final chase scene instead of being in his car she's just a decoy like it's kind of her whole thing in the movie right like she's there she's this beautiful woman this movie star like genuine bona fide movie star and she's kind of a decoy. Like, she's not integral to the story really in any way. After he finally gets that last car and starts to drive away, she just sort of parks in front of Delroy Lindo's car, doesn't let him go down this one road. And that's it. That's almost like indicative of her whole thing in the movie, that she's she's so close to being relevant, but, like, cast off before she really has any long-standing purpose. Yeah, and I think we come into a few problems with female characters in Cage films recently, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, not to any specific person's fault necessarily, I don't feel, but it's just the way, like, things have been going at this point, you know? Here it is again. It feels like they, you know, we got the whole gang, oh, we forgot to have, like, a girl, you know? Like, let's make sure this is a multicultural gang, you know? Let's make sure one of these guys is Asian, like, you know, let's just make sure we have our bases covered. And I wonder if that's not how she got the job we need a girl like let's let's see if we can get her yeah we got to make sure that 13 year old dan hayden has like a reason to take this girl <laughs> on a date that there's got to be some kind of love story here what's weird is that like okay so they start stealing the cars about a, an hour in and then i wrote down at an hour 24 cage does a fist pump for 48 so they have <laughs> no no car theft for an hour and then they get 48 cars in 24 minutes in terms of the movie, it's something like nine hours or whatever. And not only do they have 48, but Giovanni Ribisi is like in that Escalade coming back. So they really sort of have like 48 and a half. There's so much buildup. And then it's just like, that was everything. And now he's going to go get Eleanor. And I guess that's kind of cool in terms of setting up this final action scene. But in terms of like the structure of the movie... I would have liked to have had almost like the break into two, like start the car theft like way earlier, like half an hour earlier, like give us an hour of that instead of just half an hour of that. I agree. I feel like there was a good amount of fat you probably could have trimmed from the first portion of this movie and not just limited the 50 car stealing to what essentially it, it, most of it was a montage. I was actually kind of disappointed, guys, like. Dan says like it was kind of just a montage of stealing cars like really fast uh, Joey I think they should have done this like 15 minutes into the film you know <laughs> like just hit the ground running and make the whole movie almost like this quasi real time car heist thing where let's bring in De Palma and do some split screen and see two heists at once and you know <laughs> like get real creative like it's like a really cool idea and a cool concept this film about you know stealing this many cars and everything but it's just not what this movie is you know the last thing it's concerned with is like showing us all these car thefts maybe you're right maybe uh, possibly a budget issue with uh, time spent with renting the cars like if we go back to Firebirds right like they have like this helicopter budget we were talking about like how in that movie like they have the helicopters for a weekend so like all the shots kind of look the same because they couldn't go anywhere here you just don't have the cars for a long time so we can't do a lot with the cars and a lot of the cars that they are stealing just sort of seem like kind of everyday cars they're probably a little more exotic than I have the knowledge to know but like they're not all Ferraris and Porsches and all these, you know, Shelby GTs. It's just, they're kind of like regular-ish cars. 
the one he gets sh- that that uh, one of the characters gets shot in is like an Escalade. <laughs> yeah, and and I think that speaks to you know what I was saying earlier is like just just have them boost like the twenty exotic card. Why even concern? Why does the movie even concern us with like the Chryslers or like you know? <laughs> I mean, I understand why we don't see him boosting all the Chevy Malibus throughout the film and stuff like that. So so why even bother putting them on a, on the list at all? Just stick with the cool cars and have that be the film. You almost need a director like a Justin Lin who like turns this into like car porn. You know what I mean? Like like you need a director who loves cars and who like wants to show you the cars and who like wants to like like forget the characters. I would forgive this movie for not having well defined characters if we see a lot more car stuff. But like we just don't. And like they're at forty nine cars. And then the only thing, the only other, like, real big moment that happens before this final scene is that Kip finds out why Cage left. And it's this kind of emotional scene, but again, like we were talking about at the start of the podcast, not as emotional or affecting as it could have been, because it's not Cage who tells him that he left because his mother told him to. He learns it from Robert Duvall. The movie's big emotional moment, even that isn't done well. Brother's the best boost in the world, but I don't know if he's going to make this one. Uh, I'm not like my brother, you know, I just don't abandon my friends. Oh, man, I ought to smack you, silly boy. You think your brother ran away, is that what you think? You better get your story straight. Well, go on, then straighten it out. Your mother told him to go. She knew if Memphis stayed, you were going to walk his line, you were going to join his crew. And she told him to pick up and go. And he did, thinking it was best for you. He left all of us for you. I guess it wasn't that big a deal for him, though, really. It wasn't that big a sacrifice, leaving everything he'd ever known behind. And six years later, ain't life grand. You became a car boost anyway. Well, they add the little small symphony in the background as opposed to, you know, playing some EDM or something. That's really the only way you can tell that it's a moment of emotional distress. Him talking about his mother and playing this very, you know, low-key, you-should-feel-something music in the background. It's just not played well. This should not be coming from anyone other than his brother. You know, this should be earlier. It should be a brother-to-brother moment. You know, it, it, I don't I don't like the way any of this is really landing because now Giovanni Ribisi, he's just going to be mad at his mom now, Like, right? Like, I don't know, like, pass the blame. And so with that sort of emotional baggage in the rear view car pun intended we're able to get into this final scene there's not even like a lot of things that i wrote down like it's just kind of like cage boosts the car there's a history between him and this kind of car the car has died on him in the past and i don't know if i missed it or if they just didn't set it up well but you know at some point in this chase the car is going to die on him he leads the cops through this chase through the city and there's all this destruction what's weird is that for a movie that's not about cars The Rock had a much better car chase Mm -hmm. than this movie. Who would have thought in Cage Club, this is at best the third best car scene? (laughs) I mean, number two is the chasing of The Rock, and number one is obviously never on Tuesday. (laughs) But this is a movie about cars and car theft and car chases. Like, how are you not hitting this out of the park? One thing that really sets this apart from The Rock is that this doesn't take place in San Francisco, you know, and I, I think that added a lot to just the sense of that chase sequence, you know, there's just a history between Bullet, the film Bullet being filmed there, and that being a great car chase, and then The Rock sort of 
upping that. And this doesn't really feel like it's trying to break the mold or do much new stuff. You know, they what do they do? They race through sort of like those aqueducts from Terminator 2, which they race through in Greece, you know? Like, I've seen that before, right? Uh, it's kind of cool when a chopper starts following him, but then even the chopper's like, I'm not an Apache. What do you want from me? You know, and I'm like, oh, Firebirds. <laughs> and yeah, he drives backwards. Like, uh, all right, he doesn't even go up on two wheels or anything like that, you know? He loses them on the docks. What? <laughs> like, he basically just like drives around in circles until they get dizzy and then he takes off. There is like one cool moment and I'm sure it's been in another movie already. I just can't think of it. A cop car gets taken out by a wrecking ball. That's kind of cool. People talk about how like in Fast Five they're dragging that safe through the streets of Rio or in Man of Steel where Superman and Zod are crashing through the city and you're not seeing death. So many people should be dying in this city And even people like that cop who gets hit by the wrecking ball on the driver's side, basically at the driver's door, and he's just like, "Eh, I'm okay. Nobody dies in this movie when really everybody should be dying. Yeah, that guy's done. I totally agree with the, you know, the body count going on off screen in this film. Yeah, it's just not concerned with that whatsoever. One thing during this chase that kind of made me sit up straight was the NOS injection when he when he hits that turbo button. And, <laughs> I, and I was thinking totally fast and furious. Believe me, I wasn't thinking that for a long time. I was like, uh, the only thing I was thinking was I'd rather be watching Fast and Furious with Nick Cage starring in it. And uh, I saw this NOS and I was like, oh, there's another connection there is one very cool moment in the scene it's right at the tail end of it where nicholas cage kind of lost the cops they're they're so far behind him that if he just keeps going there's no way they'll catch him but there's a huge traffic accident on this bridge he backs up to to think of something to do when the cops finally catch up with him And so his idea is that he's going to jump the gigantic traffic, this big accident, multi-car accident. Without the NOS, I guess, at this point, he just, he guns it as fast as he can in in a true brilliant visual effects moment. This car just floats (laughs) over the entire traffic accident, the back wheels tip the side of an ambulance, and he lands with the car still miraculously able to drive. There's so much insanity, like, in such a small amount of time for me right here. (laughs) I love the idea and everything. Like, I've always wanted to see this. I would drive around town and see landscapers with that sort of gate down, and I would always be like, man, imagine someone in a car chase, like, launching off one of those. And this is sort of what I was thinking about. This is, like, the sort of ramp to the pickup truck or the car mover that's going to move it, and, and he takes it at, like, 110 miles an hour hour i think and just flies over the ambulance and everything i mean talk about superman he's finally flying what really amazed me was there was no traffic on the other side of the accident so luckily like he didn't crash on top of a car or anything he lands the car is still drivable he gets it to the docks but he's a couple minutes late and Kalitri's like, no, sorry, like, you're not here in time, you know, the, this rearview mirror's knocked off, there's a little damage to the body, like, sorry, too bad, Kip's gonna die. You're late. Wait, you're gonna argue with me over 12 minutes? I just saw 50 cars for you in one night, alright? I'm a little tired, a little wired, and I think I deserve a little appreciation. I said 50 cars, not 49 and a half. 49 and a half? She's not so bad, man. She's got, what? You know, some paint and, uh, you know, some fiberglass. Yes, indeedy. You know, in the book on her, 60, 70, 
call it 80, so you take 80, all right? You subtract it from 200, all right? And we make a deal. You take 80 from 200, and we call it even. They say a line that I feel like the writer came up with at some point while writing the script, and they had no place to put it in. It never rains, but it pours, like playing it on his last name. And I was just like, that doesn't make sense. Like, it's this cool sort of pun-based, cool bad guy line, but, like, it doesn't make sense. I might have gone the other way and said, uh, it looks like your reign is over, you know, (laughs) something more in that direction. The cage gets punched in the face with brass knuckles. They sort of made a deal that they call Robert Duvall, and they're like, all right, bring Kip over. And he's like, sorry, man, he left town. I'm like, all right, I guess we're just going to kill Memphis. I guess we're just going to kill Cage. And so they take Cage. They're about to kill him. They bring him out back. They're about to shoot him in the head. And then Kip comes and saves the day. Like, he's in the crane, and he just swings the crane head and knocks out both bad guys with one fell swoop. Again, like, it's kind of a cool thing, but, like, why are there no cars this is like this is how the car chase movie is going to end. The guy in a crane. <laughs> they had to go back try to try to figure out some other way of uh, of any of the movie besides you know the massive car chase they just had. I mean, they figured Cage just jumped over a bunch of cars on a bridge. How are we going to top that? We we have to we have to finish this off somehow. Oh, let's have a gunfight in a warehouse. What's crazy to me is we're seeing the steel yard at daytime now for the first time. Like, that's sort of the carpenter's lair is at the steel yard. When they have Cage, like, on top of that machine, like, all I can think about is Superman 3. And if Cage was fighting his evil self right now, just, like, how <laughs> unbelievably perfect that would have been for an ending to this movie. But, yeah, like, how did Kip and that guy get in? Like, there are no other thugs sort of patrolling the grounds. Like, I would have loved to see him take those guys out and like infiltrate and try and rescue his brother and like the whole movie his brother's been rescuing him but now in the last five minutes he has to rescue his brother it's just like super convenient and then the cops show up too right like the cops are down yeah not not only did you know Kalitri's thugs let somebody in and start operating a crane there's no protection for cage coming in and beating the hell out of Kalitri and there's <laughs> nobody at the door waiting for the cops to show up it seems like everybody in this world is just part of Cage's crew. There's not enough like bad guy or sort of criminal type extras that are going to align with Kalitri because they're all on Cage's team. So there's just not enough guys around. Again, like this sort of is like the ending that you almost kind of expect. Kalitri comes up to Delroy Lindo and pulls a gun on him. He's like, "Hey, man, I'm a cop. You don't want to do that." And then Cage just kicks Kalitri over the edge of like a railing, and he falls. I don't know, fifty feet lands on his coffin that he threatened to bury Kip in and dies. And then Delroy Lindo's like, you just saved my life. Get out of here, you wacky kid. Like, forget about all that damage you caused the city. Forget about your 50 counts of Grand Theft Auto. Like, just get out of here. Here I am smack dab in the middle of a moral dilemma, Randall. You've torn this town to shreds with that little escapade of yours, you and your Eleanor. But I understand what brought you back here. Brother's love is... a brother's love. You saved my life, didn't you? So what am I gonna do? It's your call, detective. Get out of here, Randall. I'll clean this up. Go, Randall, before I change my mind. Go. 
Cage tells him where the cars are located, and then he just walks off. Again, just it's sort of like a movie ending, and like I'm kind of okay with it, but it all wraps up too conveniently. Well, Lindo does kind of tie it together with the probably the main theme of the movie, where he says, oh, I understand, a brother's love is a brother's love. But, like, how does he understand that? Like, we didn't <laughs> never met his brother. Like, I agree, Dan, like, that's a good sort of moment there at the end. I want that in there, but I want it from Giovanni Ribisi or something else. It feels like the words are coming out of the wrong character's mouth. And I just don't like the abrupt sort of rap that this gets here up at the end. Why couldn't the carpenter jump into a car in one of the containers and like you know get away and then cage has to chase after him they have like a car battle at the end and one of them gets like knocked into the river or something and that's how he dies like i just i don't want a fist fight i don't want to stand off with a cop and i don't want him kicked four floors into a coffin well you got to go back to the whole carpenter aspect of it you know cage picks up the the chair whatever he's building and threatens him with it it kind of pulls <laughs> yeah. him off and then and then like you said at the end he dies falling into the coffin that he built so i mean mm. at the end of the day he had nothing to do with cars except for the fact that he was <laughs> se- having somebody steal them and sell them for him He's like the worst Bond villain in the world, right? Like, he's not even, like, all about what he wants to steal, you know? Like, he should be going after really old furniture and shit and, like, antique clocks and freaking dressers and stuff from, like, Roman times. Like, he's in the wrong stealing business. You don't name yourself the carpenter and then go steal a bunch of cars. Like, you know, you name yourself, like, the engine and then you go steal a bunch of cars. Oh, I like that. Yeah, have him build engines instead of building coffins and, and then stuff. We would have had, like, the anti-cage, you know, we could have had Memphis, but, like, you know, the mirror-mirror version of Memphis, where he's, like, twice the size and knows twice as much and, like, never got out of the game. And instead of, like, having this great ending that this movie could have, like, it almost could have, like, redeemed the movie. Like, it's not bad, and there's fun parts, but it's just not as good as it could have been or should have been, especially with its premise. Instead, what we get is this happy ending, everybody goes back to the warehouse... Jane's addiction's been caught stealing, playing in the background, real on the nose, but I also kind of love it. They're having, like, a big family dinner, just like at the end of Fast Five. It's a family, kind of. They're like, we have a gift for you, and Cage gets his Eleanor, and then he and Angelina Jolie drive off, fade to black, car sputters out. He's like, aw, don't die on me. Revs back up, drive off, movie over. I think it's concerned, like, it's too concerned with giving us, like, a happy ending. You know, every Fast and Furious movie gives us a happy ending, but they almost feel like a logical conclusion of where we've been. They were almost like, okay, how do we get to this happy ending? Let's just figure out how to get there. Yeah, to me, it felt a little tagged on there. You know, they definitely could have ended it in the steel mill when the cop tells Cage he's free to go. He could have just walked outside and, like, put his arms around everybody, and then they could have just walked off into the sunset or something. This is just sort of almost a tribute to the car, Eleanor, in a sense, where it plays such a predominant role in the original film. It's like a yellow one, and it's like, you know, a real one, and they really bang the shit out of it, go all out, and it is sort of the star of the original film it even says you know starring eleanor so i almost felt like this was to pay homage in a sort of way they did a couple of things especially with the the eleanor like i I believe that the place that nicholas cage steals the car is the same place that uh the character steals the car in the first movie okay yeah i noticed a couple things where the 
screenwriter definitely watched the first movie and then put stuff in from there, peppered it throughout. Uh, at one point that I actually like, Vinnie Jones steals a car with a python inside of it. Uh, in the original film, the guy tries to steal a car and there's a tiger in the backseat. And it's sort of like this just crazy anti-theft device. So there's some moments. Before we get into sort of final thoughts, there's a couple acting cage connections. Scott Kahn will return in Sunny. Timothy Oliphant will return in Snowden, which isn't even out yet. Grace Zabriskie, who plays his mom in this, was back from Wild at Heart. What's kind of cool, in a way that we sort of talked about, I think, with Deadfall, Cage will never act with Angelina Jolie again, but Cage will act with John Voight, her father, in the National Treasure movies. We have a couple multi-generation Cage connections. The only thing I want to say is that this received an MTV nomination for the best action scene. <laughs> it did... Cage has received a lot of MTV Movie Award nominations. He has been sort of a, a crowd favorite at the MTV Movie Awards with best on-screen duo and best action scene and all sorts of stuff. Dan, any last thoughts? Anything you want to talk about the movie that we haven't covered already? This movie was silly to rewatch, especially because I probably saw it a number of times when it came back on. I, I remember pretty fondly that it was on Stars or Encore. When I was in my mid-teens, late teens, I have not rewatched this movie in probably seven or eight years. So, so rewatching it again, you know, I kind of remembered everything. It was pretty predictable for me. But, you know, little things that brought me back to, like I said, you know, the experience of first seeing it in the theater. It was a, a nice little walk down memory lane, if not, you know, the best movie I can remember watching. But it was, it was fun, fun to watch again. So, Mike, any final thoughts? Uh, no, I'm, I'm fine. Thanks. So, Dan, thank you for joining us here in Cage Club. It was, a, it was a delight to have you. Thank you, guys. You are the best. Thank you so much for having Aww. me. For all things Nicolas Cage and all things Cage Club, you can go to cageclub.me. You can read our reviews for every movie that we've talked about. You can find past podcasts. You can find out how to follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes from there. All your Nicolas Cage needs at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And that's Dan Hayden. And we'll <laughs> see you next time on Cage Club. Little